Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. What makes them industry giants? Get ready to take a peek inside and learn their secrets of success. This is Silicon Valley Insider, the show that demystifies the valley and helps to elevate your business to the next level. Now, your host for Silicon Valley Insider, Keith Koo. Welcome to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Professor Gary Smith from Pomona College. Hi, Gary. Hi, Keith. So for this week's tech news, I have a bunch of Google-related stories. It's a little bit dated because of just how much has been in the news, but I felt this one was worth bringing to light. So if you were a user of Google+, which is in essence Facebook for Google, you might have been heard that the entire service is shutting down. And the reason why the entire service is shutting down is that it was breached. And there was about half a million accounts that were compromised. And how it happened was through what's called, we talk often on the show, third-party apps. So applications that run on top of Google+, things like music, photos, etc. Um, Google was very reluctant to actually mention that this breach occurred. And when they did occur, they said, well, we don't know of any uh, data that had actually been lost. Uh, the regulators, of course, weren't very happy about that, especially since this happened during the whole Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal, which at the time, the news was that Google seemed to have been able to not been uh, in the spotlight. And so now we hear that at the exact same time as the Cambridge Fa- Facebook am- Analytica scandal, that Google had some issues as well. Uh, this is also related in current Google news, is that Dragonfly, this reported system that Google was using um, as a prototype for the Chinese audience. And just as a reminder, Google doesn't actually, quote unquote, work in China. In order to get it to work, you actually have to use something called a virtual private network, which we can talk more of in the future. But Google did admit uh, as recently as this week that the Dragonfly project was real or is real, that there were over 300 employees working on it, and that for them to not come up with a product that would address a market as large as the Chinese population would not be a good business move. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that. In other news, Netflix is now responsible for 15% of all global internet traffic, which is just uh, amazing that one individual company can be generating that much content and traffic. And this was a big reason why they were not a fan of net neutrality. And lastly, uh, WannaCry, a cyber event that happened about a year and a half ago, the attacked mainly in the news hospitals in the UK and ATMs in China. The UK announced that it cost them over 92 million pounds in, the, in how to actually remediate that attack after the fact. And that's the news of the week. Hey, Insiders. So again, I'm really excited to have a special guest, Gary Smith, who is the Fletcher Jones Professor of Economics at Pomona College. Uh, Just a little more background on Gary. He received his PhD in economics from Yale, where he was also a professor there for several years. Uh, He's won two teaching awards and written or co-authored more than 80 academic papers and 12 books, including his latest, which we're going to talk about today, The AI Delusion. So Gary, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So Gary, artificial intelligence or AI, it's 
all in the news. It's been a buzzword. Um, I did a series of shows where I talked about um, people's fears. Uh, I, I talked about how a Chinese company, a robotic company, came to me for advice about a year ago, thinking that they were going to really uh, penetrate the U.S. market. And I said, have you ever heard of a movie called Terminator? What is what is your take on the AI delusion? How did that get started? Well, you know, computers can do a lot of amazing things. They can calculate the square root of any number. They can tell us the capital of any country in the world. They can tell us the directions to the nearest Starbucks. They can beat humans in Jeopardy, checkers, chess, backgammon, go. And so it's kind of natural to think that uh, computers are smarter than us. And uh, if they're smarter than us, then they should make decisions for us. And that's the delusion part is... Computers are really, really good at very specific, well-defined tasks like finding a square root, but they're really, really bad at anything that requires human wisdom, human common sense, human critical thinking. And there are lots of examples of that. One is there's this thing called the Winograd Schema Challenge, you may have heard of. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, what does it refer to in the sentence? You can't cut that tree down with that axe. It is too small. And, of course, we, we know what a tree is. We know what an axe is. We know what small means. And we, so we know it refers to the, uh, to the axe. And computers, they can't, they can't answer that question because they don't know those things. They don't know. I mean, they can, look, they can spell check tree and axe and cut down. They can count how many times the words are used. They can search the Internet for them. But they don't know in any meaningful sense what, what the words actually mean. Another example is uh, th- this particular question. Is it safe to walk downstairs backwards if I close my eyes? And so humans, we know what walk is, we know what stairs are, we know what backwards is, we know what closed eyes are, and we know the answer to that, but, but computers don't. And so to ask a computer to make any kind of decision that involves knowledge of the world is, is, is dangerous. On, the, on that Weingrass Schema Challenge, Orrin Essioni, who's up at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, he's quipped, how can computers take over the world they don't even know what it refers to in a sentence. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly right. Computers, they don't know what the world is. They don't know what life is. They don't know what humans are. They don't know what takeover means. They don't know what survival means. They don't know what resources mean. I mean, we, we have this tendency to think of inanimate objects like trees and computers or, or things like foxes and pigs. We think of them as having human-like uh, characteristics, but they, but they don't. So, computers, computers in particular are really good at processing pixels, letters, words, numbers, and finding patterns and doing useful things with those patterns. But to step outside that and have any kind of general intelligence that's needed to answer important questions, they don't have at the moment. Agreed. So uh, as we discussed, we're not yet at the Terminator Skynet phase of artificial (laughs) intelligence. Not even close. And what you bring up in pattern analysis is really interesting, right? Because uh, we talk a lot about how artificial intelligence at this point really is not anything without machine learning. And machine learning meaning that there's a data lake that gets trained, you put inputs into it, all that data gets um, what used to be structured data, now you have unstructured data, how do you make sense of that? So with the coupling of machine learning, do you think that changes anything around the assumptions around artificial intelligence? Well, I don't, I don't think it does. The, I mean, again, deep neural networks and things like that are really good at well-defined tasks like winning at Go. But if you were to change the dimensions of the board from 19 by 19 to 20 by 20 or 21 by 21, they wouldn't know what to do because they don't understand the game in any meaningful sense. They don't understand strategy or objectives or goals. They've just been trained to, on this particular setup with these particular pieces and these particular payoffs, what kind of things work well. 
and to, to go and apply that to any other situation, even slight modifications of the game, befuddles the computer. Right. I'd also, I'd also like to say about data mining, which, which is uh, all the rage now, it's this idea that you can look at a lot of data, and we, we have a lot of data, and you can ransack it, tweak it, massage it, and find these patterns, and they're somehow meaningful. And it's, it's the old thing, correlation is not causation. And you can look through even random data, coin flips, dice rolls, roulette wheels, and you can find patterns, and they, they don't mean anything at all because you'll always find patterns even in random data. So when I was back at Yale, to be accused of being a data miner at that time was it's like being accused of plagiarism. <laughs> <laughs> it was bad research. And one of the, one of the sayings of the time from uh, a Nobel laureate named Ronald Coase was, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess. And the idea was that data mining was really bad. And one of my colleagues and uh, mentors, James Tobin, another Nobel laureate, used to say that, battle days weren't all that bad because computers were so slow, calculators were so slow, you had to think hard before computing. And now we've turned that on our head, and we think data mining is a virtue, not a vice, and we think it's fine just to let computers search for patterns without thinking. Hey, hey Gary, let me, let me pause you right there for a break. Sure. So sure. listening to Gary Smith, professor at Pomona College, who wrote a book, AI Delusion, for questions or comments, email us at info at svin.biz, and we'll give you more information on this book when we get back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. Today, I'm joined by Professor Gary Smith of Pomona College, who just wrote a book, The AI Delusion. So, Gary, thanks again for being here. Oh, thank you. So, Gary, let's get into the why. You've written over 80 academic papers and 12 books. Why the AI delusion? Well, a lot of these papers do the very thing I was criticizing before, the data mining or the torturing data. And they come up with these preposterous conclusions, like people can postpone death until after holidays, or Asian Americans tend to get heart attacks on the fourth day of the month because the number four is an unlucky number. <laughs> or, and seriously, that was published in the British Medical Journal. It, it, it's just nonsense. And what they did was they went through and they looked at eight categories of heart attacks, and in four of them there were more deaths on the fourth, and the other four there were fewer deaths on the fourth. And so, of course, they reported the ones where there were more deaths. And yeah. <laughs> if you look at all eight, there's nothing there or you look at a time period before they looked at or after they looked at, there's nothing there. And so this stuff gets published. And there's another one about uh, hurricanes with female names are more deadly than hurricanes with male names. And, and again, it was nonsense. And what this has done is created what's called the replication crisis in science, which is people data mine, torture data, they publish papers. It could be an economic paper, medical paper, a politics paper. And then somebody tries to replicate the results, and it vanishes because it was just a coincidental correlation in the first place. And so a lot, a lot of those 80 papers are uh, debunking things that people found through, through data mining. And then now we've got computers which are data mining on steroids. I mean, they, they data mine <laughs> so much better than any individual could do. Just turn it loose to, to a computer. I, I got an offer the other day in the mail, it was, or email, it was, uh, you want to buy the software and I could ransack data. They had millions of, of observations, millions of variables available for me, and I could ransack them for, look, for unexpected correlations. <laughs> that's exactly what the point is of, of the AI delusion. Well, one of the points of the AI delusion is unexpected correlations are probably 
fleeting, transitory, and useless, or worse. Yeah, what's, what's funny is I'm Chinese-American, but my family doesn't follow yep. Eastern religion. Uh, we're Christians, right? So it's funny when you say that, because I, I know very well the number four in Chinese rhymes with synonymous with death, or yep. yeah, and that uh, eight is fortune. And it's funny that you would say that, because when I worked at Cisco, which I talk about a lot, uh, the telecom folks had to often get requests to reprogram phone numbers if you ended up getting fours in them. Exactly, and that that it, it actually is data showing that like Chinese restaurants have relatively few fours in their phone numbers, but that's a lot different from <laughs> being so afraid of the fourth day of the month, which which happens every month, <laughs> that you're going to have a heart attack and die. It's, it's nonsense. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks. So here's something interesting, <laughs> right? Last week. We had a huge market sell-off, a lot of uh, carnage, and really, our, our, I'm one of the few technology shows on our network, but usually it's about wealth management, health advice, legal advice. There was a concept, which is perfect for you, about how you know we as humans often blame artificial intelligence for things happening. And the, the corollary here was that because these are market-triggered events, people have to do margin calls and that stuff. Um, it's now the machines blaming the humans. Yeah, I mean, it, it's none of that. It, it's none of that, and it's all of that. I mean, there's a lot of algo traders out there that are doing stuff, and there's a lot of humans doing stuff, and, and neither side should blame the other. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think uh, my personal view, and I've talked about it before, artificial intelligence, the concept of artificial intelligence can be a tool. As you said earlier in, in, in this segment, um, we train data sets, and the training gets better. So the fact that... Uh, Watson, IBM Watson can beat the two top Jeopardy champions ever. One, and I just met with Watson um, a couple days ago. One was that it ingested the entire data set of Wikipedia and every other encyclopedia. But really, the reality is not that it knew the answer more than the two champions knew the answer. It just always knew if it had the answer, it would always win on the buzzer because it's trained to instantly hit the buzzer. Yep, it had a it had a much faster trigger finger than the champions. And right. So there were a lot of questions. They they knew the answer, but they didn't get a chance to give it because electronic machine can hit a buzzer faster than a human can. Exactly. But the perception is that Watson knew more than even the Jeopardy champions yeah, did. Yeah. And the people who developed developed uh, Watson, they said we didn't set out to create something that mimicked the human mind. We set out to create something that win at Jeopardy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's very good at that very narrow task. But then to apply that to something else, like should somebody get a job, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fly. Well, well, here's the thing, because we've had companies that say they can do that now, right? We've had uh, yeah. a couple of startups, one that is a personality assessment-based um, algorithm using artificial intelligence. And, I mean, there was a whole concept around the ethics around doing that, and they had some responses between the U.K. government and the state of California. But it was that through pattern analysis, they can predict job success better than or or more accurately than traditional means, but of course, it is really about training on lots of job applications, lots of people who apply for those applications, and what their skill sets are. Yeah, like one of the ones mentioned, one of the examples mentioned in my book is a company that does that kind of software, and they came up with the idea that uh, people who visited a particular Japanese manga site were likely to be good programmers because a lot of the programmers they were working for them visited that site. And the CEO of the company said, it's obviously not causal. <laughs> just, put, just put it right out there. It's obviously not causal. Yeah. And then she also said, these correlations come and go, and we're constantly updating our algorithm to take into account new information. 
well, if it constantly comes and goes, you know it's, it's nothing permanent, nothing useful. And the other example, of course, is Amazon. And they, had, they, had, they brought an algorithm for, for job applications, and it got shut down for two reasons. One, it was trained on the existing people they had working for them, which were overwhelmingly male. <laughs> and so when words like women popped up in the resume, that got negative points. And if they're on you know, the women's lacrosse team or something, negative points because women popped up. Because on the male resumes, women never showed up. And then the other thing is, is Amazon said a lot of the times they were giving nonsense responses. They'd recommend somebody for a job for which they were, they were totally unqualified because they found some pattern in the data which had nothing to do with job performance. It was just like visit a Japanese manga site. It's <laughs> just a coincidental, meaningless correlation. And, and that's where we talk a lot about how engineers, of t- even up to today, weren't trained as behavioral scientists, sociologists, or psychologists. They're trained as developers. And if they don't have exactly. that skill set and they're being instructed to create an algorithm without guardrails, then yep. exactly. um, you, you will get an unintended consequence. And that's where all these different biases, you'd, you'd mentioned uh, a couple already, well, one being data-driven bias and the other one being interaction bias, right? So that the yep. data is itself driving the outcome and then um, because you can do it tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times versus the normal research, you automatically come to the conclusion that that was the right, right outcome. Yep, exactly. So then what are some ways, and we, we, we also talk about it, what are some ways do you think, Gary, that you can actually develop um, AI in an appropriate way? Well, it's hard. The, uh, the first thing is if the, if the AI is actually revealing the basis for its decisions, why somebody's loan should be approved, why somebody's job application should be improved, what the car insurance rates should be for somebody. If the algorithm is revealing why is the basis for its decisions, or, or to a doctor, why you should have surgery, then humans can step in and say, well, thanks for your advice, but let's consider whether it makes sense or not. But the problem is increasingly becoming that these things are in deep neural networks hidden inside black boxes, and nobody knows why the machine is making that recommendation. And so it says, we recommend to cut you open. <laughs> well, why? I don't know. Computer says so. You got turned down for this job. Why? I don't know. Computer says so. Your, your loan application got turned down. Why? I don't know. Computer says so. And that, that is part of the, the challenge right now, I think, I, I, I believe, is to try and figure out a way for people to keep a check on black box algorithms like deep neural networks to figure out what's going on inside the black box. Hey, hey Gary, let's continue this on in the next segment. But before we sure. do that, how can people get your book? Uh, Amazon's fine or Oxford University Press is fine. Okay. And again, it's The AI Delusion by Gary Smith. It's on, available on Amazon.com and Oxford University Press. Oxford University Press, yep. yep. Okay. So again, Keith Koo, Silicon Valley Insider with Gary Smith. Any questions or comments, you can email us at info at svn.biz, and we'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. Today, joined by Professor Gary Smith of Pomona College and the author of a new book, The AI Delusion. Welcome again, Gary. No, thanks for having me. So in last week's tech news, I talked about how a Windows 10 update by Microsoft actually and really did delete files. 
And so this week, I'm going to follow up with that news story about what you can actually do about it if you think you actually lost files when you updated Windows 10. And again, coming on my soapbox, uh, there's these terms in technology, early adopter and fast follower. I'm very openly a fast follower. I let my friends, the real geeks, do the early adoption, and that's how they screw up their iPhone or they lose their data. So if you want to take my advice, a fast follower is much safer than being an early adopter. So Windows 10, they had a release. It updates your computer. You probably had it on automatic setting, which is also very dangerous. And if you did that, Microsoft attempted to convert your operating system, upgrade it from whatever version it was, Windows 7, Windows 10 to the latest, and they do that by moving files around um, seamlessly. Now, unfortunately, the way they name these files and folders, like, say, old folder, it usually picked up the correct settings. But if it didn't, it automatically, upon cleanup, deleted old folders. So if you had real files in there, they're gone. And uh, in terms of recovery, you can send it into these expensive shops to recover your data. Microsoft has some self-help tips, so you should go to the Microsoft.com website. And yeah, this is real. Microsoft apologizes. They really did an update that did delete files. They do say, though, that if you were a fast follower and you now have the fix to the patch, it's kind of funny to have a patch to a patch, um, you should be okay. And that's the tip of the week. So once again, we have Gary Smith, professor of Pomona College, author of The AI Delusion. And Gary, I guess the story I just gave about the uh, tip of the week, that is a form of artificial intelligence gone wrong. So with your book, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the AI delusion, but there probably are some benefits you see to AI, right? Definitely. Computers are I mean, invaluable. I use them uh, every day of my life. And you mentioned I've written uh, more than 80 papers and 13 books, and every single one of them I couldn't have written without a computer. And I'm not talking about word processing. I'm talking about uh, mathematical calculations, statistical calculations, Monte Carlo simulations. I mean, I, I would be absolutely, there's so many things like, it would take me a lifetime to do things that I can do in a few seconds with a computer. And there are other things like planting seeds or searching legal documents or searching medical records that computers are just absolutely wonderful at. And the point is we've got to realize that there are limitations to what they're doing is useful tasks. What they're not doing is any kind of critical thinking. So, you know, what are some other examples in in your book that you highlight regarding some of these um, problematic things around AI? You know, job applications is an obvious one. Another one is uh, Admiral Insurance in Britain, it was England, Britain's largest uh, auto insurance company. It was going to uh, price insurance. It was called First Car Quote, and it was going to price auto insurance based on the words you used on Facebook. And so <laughs> it started out, and it came up with some stuff which you could see. It was not inside a black box yet. And it came up with things like, do you like Michael Jordan or Leonard Cohen? That was supposed to be a predictor of whether you're going to have a car accident or not. And for one thing, it's, it's surely nonsense. And the second thing is it's surely discriminatory in who likes those two different people. Absolutely. And, and, and then it went inside a black box. And they said, we no longer know. We know what we do know is that searching is constantly coming up with new words that, that correlate with uh, having accidents, which means when you're constantly coming up with new think new predictors, that it's just temporary, fleeting correlations that are not causation. And uh, hours before they were about to launch, Facebook stepped in and said uh, there's some rule, you know, 37B, subsection 2.3 or something, 
that says you cannot use Facebook data to price uh, insurance. Yeah, yeah, because of the obvious uh, liability there, yes. But the other thing is, Facebook actually has a patented algorithm for pricing insurance, and so I don't think they're being benevolent here. I think they're just protecting their turf, and they may well do it at some point. Well, uh, just a slight tangent on that, yeah. because you, you bring yeah, up a sure. good point. Facebook um, has an algorithm that I, I talked about a couple months back where they can send a hypersonic frequency through your television to your smartphone and start recording ambient noise. Now, the obvious part of that is if they can record ambient noise, they can record all noise. And they had yeah, a patent yeah. They had a patent granted in 2012 so that it, the, the news broke out and they at first didn't respond, but then the general counsel officially said, hey, we're Facebook and we often have patents that never um, amount to anything. They're defensive patents. They are for the good of humanity. But yeah, I agree with you. They're not always uh, obviously uh, benevolent. <laughs> yeah. Another one was uh, there was a Chinese company that was uh, approving loans and it said, we don't use humans to judge whether people are good credit risk or bad credit risk. That's, that's old fashioned. What we do is we use AI. And in particular, we, we monitor your, telefo- your telephone usage. And so we look at things, whether you have an iPhone or an Android, how frequently you answer incoming calls, how frequently your outgoing calls are answered, how, how, how charged you keep your battery. And we base our insurance rates on, on those, our loan applications on, on uh, those factors. And, and again, that, that's, that's total nonsense. And again, what they said is we have a series of things we look at based on your phone usage. And the things we look at change from day to day, which means it's, it's just coincidental correlations. You know, you bring up the Chinese example, which seems actually pretty benign for the Chinese since they have the social, oh, yeah. they have a social credit system that's all based yep. on um, artificial intelligence. And that, that's yep. kind of your example on steroids. Yep. And so when you alluded to uh, Facebook being a little invasive, I mean, the Chinese are much more invasive. And so they got little chips in your phone so they can know where you are and what you're doing and who you're talking to. And uh, they throw people in prison for just doing things that we would think are, are completely innocuous. Yeah, if, if, you, uh, if anybody does a search on Chinese social credit system, they, they take all kinds of inputs, including the people you associate with. So depending on their social credit rating, it by default affects your social credit rating. So if you're in a rural area with a very limited population, that kind of um, interaction, your, your family member or your friend, will have a much greater weight than if you're in a major city like Shanghai and you're interacting with a lot of people. Because then back to the machine learning part of the, the, the partner to artificial intelligence, um, the machine learning, you, you'll interact with so many more people, you get a more balanced um, score than if you have these one-offs. Exactly. And it's not just being thrown in prison. They say whether you can get rent an apartment with a deposit or without a deposit, or the kind of apartment you can rent, or where you can travel, whether you can get a ticket to travel to certain parts of the country, all depends on your social credit score. And what they say is we want to make sure the bad people don't do bad things. And the definition of a bad person, of course, is in the eyes of the Chinese government, which is not, a, not an unbiased view. And, and um, again, not, not saying good or bad, but in terms of how people feel, AI is very good for surveillance. So the, the Chinese actually have their version of Google Glass. They've been able to apprehend many, uh, in their view, many criminals, uh, murderers, yeah. others, by just basically training their, their um the version of Google Glass on... There was, um, paper, there was a paper that came out uh, last year that stirred up a lot of controversy. It was some Chinese researchers, some academics, and they claimed that AI could recognize uh, criminals by studying their faces. And so they trained on pictures, faces of uh, Chinese criminals and non-criminals, and they claimed that uh, by looking at certain things like the nose-eye angle or stuff like that, <laughs> they could tell whether you were a criminal or not. 
I, of course, worried a lot of people who get thrown in jail because of uh, your nose-eye angle or your lip curvature or some, some preposterous thing like that. And the, the really scary thing is, is American commentators said, so what's the harm if you put people in an internment camp for a while and re-educate them? <laughs> oh, wow, I, I did not hear that, but that, I could... I could. <laughs> that just shows how much faith we have in computers that we, we shouldn't have. Yeah. So in the U.S., we, we're not quite there, but we're, we're getting close. And so we have this stuff called algorithmic criminology, which courts are increasingly using to decide, should you be given bail? If you're convicted, how many years should you go to prison? And if you apply for parole, should be granted it or not? And the enthusiasts say things like, it finds all sorts of things you wouldn't expect, like the length of a person's shoes or the width of the wristband or sunspots. And this, this is an intelligent person with a Ph.D. who's saying that we should use these algorithms even though they're they're clearly using nonsense to uh, to to advise us about uh, whether you should be given bail, whether you should, how long you should be sentenced to prison, whether you should be granted parole, and yet people believe it because they think, well, who might who might argue with the computer? Computers know everything. You know, computers can win at Jeopardy. Computers can win at Go. Computers can give us directions to Starbucks. Let's have computers tell us who should go to jail. So, Gary, it's, Gary, it's, I mean, you're training. yeah, you're a professor of economics. You're just talking about another really smart person, a PhD. Was there a triggering event in your career or your life that made you think that you needed to be, you know, kind of uh, carry the flag about what AI is and isn't? I think it was cumulative, and so I, I started uh, coming across all these papers that said things that were clearly nonsense and clearly based on torturing data. And it just built up. And then a couple of years ago, I was invited up to the Googleplex for, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the thing they have up there, it's where they invite a bunch of smart people in all different fields to go yeah. up there. And, uh-huh. and, well, I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, I went up there, and one of the leading things that, that people want to talk about, and there were all sorts of fields. You know, there, there was uh, politics, there was engineering, there was astrophysics, was what's called the replication crisis. The, the, the science is being degraded by the fact that so many papers are published which don't hold up on further scrutiny because people are data mining data to get published because in order to get funding and tenure and stuff like that, you've got to get published. And so you do whatever is necessary, and all the stuff gets published that, that is, uh, is useless. And uh, in, in medical research, is so common, it's called the decline effect, that you have some article published that says that some sort of ailment could be cured with this treatment, and then when people try it, it turns out it doesn't work, or it doesn't work nearly as well as, as predicted. And it undermines the credibility of science. And so that, that sort of was, maybe that was the turning point, if there was any. No, thank you. And I think it goes back to the old adage that there's, there's lies and there's statistics, right? And that yep. this is really the new form of um, training statistics very quickly because of just the mass amount of data you can process. You know, and I really believe in science, you know, the scientific method. You have a theory. You gather some data to test the theory, and then you honestly report <laughs> what the test results were. And so much of it is backwards now. You look at the data, you come up with a correlation, and then you make up a theory to fit the correlation. Or if you have to, you tweak the data. You throw out certain observations that don't fit. You uh, separate it into different genders or different races until you find something that's publishable, and then you publish it, and it, it's useless. And there's a social psychologist up there and, at Google, and he said, my default assumption is anything published in my field is wrong. <laughs> that, that's a lamentable state of affairs. I mean, that, that, that's, as I say, it destroys the credibility of science. So that's an excellent point. And with that, we're going to pause. Um, you're listening to Gary Smith, professor 
at Pomona College, who is the author of The AI Delusion. You can find his book on Amazon.com. Any questions or comments, email us at info at svn.biz, and we'll be right back to finish up the show with Gary. Thanks. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo, joined today by very special guest, Professor Gary Smith of Pomona College. Um, author of over 80 papers and now 13 books, with the latest being The AI Delusion. Gary, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. And we've been having a really lively discussion about artificial intelligence, what we think it is, what we think it's not. So, Gary, in this final segment, I wanted to bring up what people generally think of where AI is headed, which is this concept of singularity, which is where people and machines or systems will merge, transcend the earth, and fix all problems. And uh, there's a lot of people who definitely believe in this. In fact, I believe we've been talking about Google a lot. I believe a former Googler actually started a religion around this. Kurzweil. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so let's take it down a little bit from, we're not quite there yet. Some people say we're on the horizon. But with that, a big question comes up about ethics and artificial intelligence. What's your take on that? Yeah, it, it's really hard to predict the future. I mean, if you'd gone back a dozen years and and predicted that our phones would be taken over, our lives would be taken over by iPhones, you'd think we're nuts. But but here we are, and so it's really hard to predict the future. But one of the gurus that I've talked with with quite a bit is a guy Douglas Hofstadter, who was there at the beginning of the AI revolution, and uh, he wrote a book that got a got a uh, National Book Award and a Pulitzer Prize and set him up for life. And he's been thinking about AI as I say, since the beginning. And what he tried to do, and is still trying to do, is to build algorithms that think the way humans think, that have common sense and wisdom and critical thinking. And the profession sort of went off in a different direction, which is, that's too hard. Let's do something easy we make money on, like search engines. Mm -hmm. And so it went off there. And as we said, AI is really, really good at narrowly defined tasks, but it's really bad or at uh, anything that requires human, human, actual human intelligence. And so what Hofstadter says is that it's not impossible for computers to think like humans, for computers to tell jokes and understand jokes, for, human, for computers to have wisdom, for humans to have common sense, for, I'm sorry, for computers to have common sense, for computers to have critical thinking like humans do. But we're not going to see it in our lifetime because it's, it's just too difficult a task. Mm-hmm. And, but I think that's, that, that is the, the current frontier in AI, and there are people, like I mentioned before, Oren Etzioni, up at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. And what he's trying to do up there is figure out how to give computers common sense. And so that question before, is it safe to walk down the stairs backwards if I close my eyes? Figure out how a computer can be, an algorithm can be written, so the computer would actually make sense of that question and give a sensible answer. And it's, it's very, very difficult, but that's that's what I think the true pioneers in AI are trying to do right now. Instead of trying to write algorithms for sending people to prison or approve job applications by matching up uh, resumes, they're trying to figure out how to give computers a real human-like intelligence. Yeah, and I, I think uh, what people who are non-technical or just the average person doesn't realize is that this is all, as you mentioned, um, data sets that are being trained. And so there's a term called algorithmic gaze, and that's where if you look through, if you as a human could look through what an actual machine looks at, you would see how relatively primitive it still is. And so 
when you hear about the autonomous Uber vehicle running over somebody in Arizona, it's because it's <laughs> it, it, it's funny, but it's not right because the person died. She uh, of course she cro- she jaywalked in a not knowing that she'd be coming across a car that is autonomous, and so it, it she wore dark clothing, and it literally didn't see her. It, she was not there, and so in autonomous driving, I want to talk about a little bit more for people who are listening. It's that. There's these one to four, one to five levels of autonomous driving. And today's a Tesla might be a level two where it's driver assisted. But level five is back to your point where you actually have common sense in the vehicle that it can make human-like decisions while driving. So it does not um, hit a person who happens to jaywalk in the middle of the night wearing dark clothing. Also, one of the dangers for uh, self-driving cars is there have been these studies by Google people and others where you can take a stop sign. And the, the way that cars recognize stop signs is by matching pixels to all the stop signs they've been trained on. But you can change one pixel on a stop sign, yes. which a human would not even notice the change, and the computer may not recognize it as a stop sign anymore. And right, and, and how... So, the, but, go ahead. So they call those adversarial attacks, and so what if bad people start defacing stop signs to fool self-driving cars, like putting up peace stickers or, or making a little rust dent or things like that, and... That's pretty scary, too. And, and see, what people don't realize is the current solve is not the AI in the autonomous vehicle. The current solve is for GPS to to actually mark every single one of where their sign should be. So even if the sign is not there or possibly took the sign down, the car will still know that the sign should have been there. Exactly. And so when a human drives a car, we come to an intersection, and we naturally look around to see if there's a stoplight or stop sign because we expect there might be one there. And we know what the consequences are if we don't stop we also know if the stop sign has a little bit of rust on it or is bent or twisted we st- or obscured partly by a tree, we still know it's a stop sign. And so that, that's what I mean by computers don't have that kind of wisdom and common sense that humans have. And so they've got to be assisted by GPSs that say <laughs> there should be a stop sign there, so you better stop. And that's really the amazing thing about um, humans having a biochemical computer, our brain. We can't process the data sets in the same way that a computer can, but we can have common sense and make good judgment. So, Gary, with just the last minute we have, I wanted you to basically say whatever you wanted to end with regarding the book and your thoughts around AI for humanity. Well, I think the main thing, and, and I've talked to a lot of people in computer science, and they all, they all know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the lay people or the managers who are above the computer scientists who don't really understand the limitations of, uh, of AI. And what I would say is, is that the real danger today is not that computers are smarter than us and going to take over the world. The real danger is there's too many people who think computers are smarter than us and want to trust computers to make important decisions for us, decisions they shouldn't be trusted to make. And with that, Gary, thanks. I'd love to have you back on the show sometime. Great. I'd love to be, come back. You're listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. Find Gary's book at Amazon.com, The AI Delusion, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. For questions or comments on today's program or to schedule a complimentary consultation with Keith about your business, call 1-888-828-SVIN. That's 1-888-828-7846. 888-828-SVIN.